0: Good morning, uh, my name is Jamie Borchik, I'm one of the elders here at Park, do some of the preaching, it's a joy to have you with us this morning. Uh, True confession, I was realizing as, as the offering jingle was playing, you know that song we play every week? I was realizing that that like gets in my head during the week, like I hear that like Hallelujah, I start like dancing in the shower or something because I'm like, that, that's in my head somehow, so, so whatever, whatever magic is happening here, it's, it's working on me. But um, if you've got a Bible, you can find Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. Luke chapter 5, 33 to 39. Um, that's where we're going to be this morning. And when you got it, you can stand, and we're going to read it together. If you're able, stand, please. Luke 5, 33 to 39. The word of the Lord. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers And so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would speak to us through it. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you make the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart pleasing in your sight as I preach this passage to us, God. Speak now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You grab a seat. Now, uh, how many of you have ever been to a wedding? Who's ever been to a wedding? Okay. Imagine most of us have had that experience. Well, the year that Kinsey and I got married, we actually went to 14 weddings in that summer. Um, We had three in the same week one time. And, you know, we work with college students on university campuses, so we know a lot of people are getting married. So I think over the course of our uh, 12 years of being married, I'm pretty sure we've been to over 50 weddings now. So we do lots of weddings. We know weddings. We're pros. Um, And what happens at a wedding? Like, what is a wedding for? What is a wedding all about? Well, a wedding is for the joining of a man and a woman into a new kind of relationship. They go from dating or engaged to all of a sudden now they're married. They go from boyfriend and girlfriend, or maybe fiancés, to husband and wife. At a wedding, the two become one flesh. In short, at a wedding, a new reality comes into existence. At a wedding, a new reality comes into existence. And that new reality is then marked by a celebration. Like, wedding ceremonies are certainly the most important part of the day, because that's where the new reality happens. But wedding Celebration, the wedding receptions are the most fun part of the day because that's where the party happens. That's the fun part. So we're preaching through the Gospel of Luke. And our passage today is a wedding passage. Like with the wedding, it is all about a new reality that has come into existence. Sorry for the reverb there. It is all like with a wedding, this passage is all about a new reality that has come into existence, and then the appropriate corresponding celebration. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've started to see some opposition arising to Jesus as we've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke. Last week, Phil talked to us about Jesus attending a party at the house of a tax collector, a sinner, a bad person. And the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, they grumbled about it. They came to Jesus' disciples and said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Like, what's wrong with you? Don't you know those are bad people and you're going to catch whatever they've got? You need to stay away from those kind of people. To which Jesus responded by saying essentially that those kind of people are precisely the kind of people that he came for. He came for sinners. He came to save people who needed saving. And that wasn't the response those leaders were necessarily looking for. And so our passage today flows immediately out of that context. Jesus is not acting according to the expectations of the religious leaders of the day. Nor is he acting according to the expectations of the people as a whole. Many of the people, many of the crowds, they love Jesus. They love what he's doing. He's healing people spiritually and physically. And they love it. But that doesn't mean that they necessarily understand it. They have questions about him. He doesn't, he's not like the other religious leaders. And many find themselves confused by him. And so in verse 33, the first verse of our passage this morning, some of those people come and they ask Jesus a question. They say, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And the question is implied, why? Why are yours eating and drinking? And so the people here are trying to understand Jesus, to make sense of him. And they ask him a question about his own religious practice, in particular regarding fasting. Now, if you're not familiar with fasting, fasting is the practice of abstaining from food for a given period of time in order to focus instead on worship. It means skipping meals and not eating to instead take that time to pray and to seek God. And fasting was a, in first century Judaism, fasting was a highly regarded act of worship. It played a very central role in Jewish religious life. So the Pharisees, Jesus often antagonists, the Pharisees had developed a regular rhythm of fasting. Every Monday and every Thursday, like clockwork, they would fast. It was part of the deal. It was part of being a Pharisee. It also seems that John the Baptist and his followers did something similar. To be a disciple of John was to fast. And we know that even Jesus himself fasted because Luke told us that back in Luke chapter four a few weeks ago when he went out in the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days. So clearly fasting was an important part of the religious context of the day. It was a central religious practice and good good religious people fasted regularly. But in contrast, what we see happening here is that Jesus' disciples don't fast. Instead, they eat and drink. Now, back in verse 30, if you look a little further back in your Bible, you'll see that the gripe against Jesus' followers was that they were eating and drinking with bad people. So they're eating and drinking with the wrong kind of people. But now that gripe has escalated. Now the problem is simply that they're eating and drinking at all. Like in contrast to the good religious people who are not eating and drinking, they are eating and drinking. And so it appears, as one commentator puts it, that something is haywire with Jesus' disciples. Something's wrong with these guys. They're not playing by the religious rules. So look at how Jesus himself responds in verse 34. Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So I told you this is a wedding passage. And here it is. Right here, Jesus introduces wedding language. And his point is pretty obvious. A wedding is a celebration, and just imagine if you went to a wedding, you sat through the long ceremony, which sometimes can be a little bit boring, sit through all that, you get to the reception, and at the reception, there's nothing at all to eat or drink. How would you feel about that? Like, what would your reaction be? You know, at our wedding back in the day, when Kinsey and I got married, um, Kinsey had this super cool idea to do cake pops instead of an actual cake. Like, I'm not really into cake anyway. So, and this was way before Starbucks came up with the whole cake pop thing. So, like, we were ahead of the trend on this. And uh, we got this baker who made these awesome cake pops, and she put them, she made them kind of look like a cake, and it was really beautiful presentation and all that. And our venue was supposed to wait until after the the meal to bring those out for dessert. But they messed up, and instead, they set them out right at the beginning. And so, as our guests walk in, they're greeted by this cake pop looking cake thing. And uh, you know what the guests did when they saw that? Well, they treated it like an appetizer, and they went to town on it. And They ate all of them, like right away. And most people got one, but, but a lot of people ate more than one, and so some people got none. And so as we were going around after our meal, and we were greeting folks and talking to people, we met some of these folks who weren't real happy. They didn't get any dessert. And it was at that point that one of my, that my, one of my best friends growing up, his mom was, was one of those folks who didn't get one. And as we're as we're talking to her afterward, she, she like compliments the ceremony and says some nice things. But then she goes, she makes this infamous comment. This comment going to live forever in family lore for us. She goes, "Guess I'm going to have to stop at Dunkin' Donuts because there's no dessert left for anybody." <laughs> and look, if you went to a wedding and there was no food at all, you'd probably be mad about having to stop at Dunkin' Donuts too. And that's Jesus's point here, because what are weddings for? They're not for fasting. They're for feasting. Weddings are for, fa- for feasting, not for fasting. And so the point is obvious. The point is obvious. But why is Jesus talking about a wedding at all? Why does he bring up a wedding here? Well, throughout the Old Testament, marriage language is commonly used to describe God's relationship to his people. For example, and you'll see a couple of these up on the screen right here. For example, Isaiah 54, 5 reads, "'For your maker is your husband,' The Lord of hosts is his name. And then Isaiah 62 6 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. See, marriage is the most intimate human relationship possible. And for that reason, God uses language like this, he uses the language of marriage to describe the kind of relationship that he desires to have with his people. He wants to be the central relationship in our lives. He is the groom. And we are his bride. And he wants wants us to know him the way that a bride knows her groom. That's the point of this marriage language. It's that our relationship with God would be our most intimate and significant relationship. And so, in verse 34, when Jesus says the bridegroom is with them, he's drawing on that Old Testament language. And yet, he's doing so with an important twist. Because who is Jesus putting in the place of the groom here? Who's the bridegroom? Yeah, it's him. It's Jesus Himself. And when He puts Himself in the place of the groom, He's doing something astonishing. He's equating Himself with the God of the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying that He is the one who has come to bring a new reality into existence. He's the one who's come to offer people a marriage like relationship with God. He's the groom and he's come to marry his people, to create that kind of relationship with us. He's saying that about himself. And that begs the question for you and for me. Do you have that kind of relationship with him? Is Jesus the most intimate relationship in your life? Is Jesus the most central relationship in your life? Is Jesus the most meaningful relationship in your life? Do you know him that way? Do you experience that kind of love from him? That's what Jesus came to bring into the world. And that's what Jesus still offers you today. And so do you know God like that? Do you have that? Now the first people to experience that new reality through Jesus were his disciples. The phrase translated wedding guests here is actually the common language for a wedding party. And so Jesus pictures his disciples kind of as his groomsmen. And why don't they fast? Why aren't his groomsmen fasting? Well, again, it's because they're at a wedding. It's time for feasting, not for fasting. And so that's verse 34. But then Jesus continues in verse 35. And he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then in those days, they will fast. So Jesus says that the wedding will not last forever. A day is coming. A day is coming when, all, when he will be taken away, when he will be removed from the picture. And what he's alluding to is something that was just over the horizon as he was speaking. Within a few short years from this moment when Jesus is talking, Jesus will quite literally be taken away from his disciples by the Roman authorities. At that moment, he will be nailed to a cross and will be put to death. And then he'll rise from the grave and he'll ascend into heaven. And when that happens, Jesus will no longer physically be with his disciples. And so, as he speaks here in Luke 5, he's the groom with his groomsmen. It's a time of feasting, not fasting. But when he leaves, when he's taken away, then fasting will again be appropriate. And so, in verse 34, Jesus made this astounding claim to be God, to want to be the central relationship in our lives. He's the groom. And then, here in verse 35, he actually takes that claim, which is rather astonishing in the first place. He actually takes that claim and he's taking it a step farther. What he's doing here, he's saying fasting, which is this central religious practice of the day. Good religious people fasted. But what is Jesus claiming about fasting here in relation to himself? Like what determines whether or not you ought to fast? What's he saying? Well, Jesus is saying here that fasting, the right observation of fasting and that religious practice, it all depends on him. It's all about him. If he's present, you don't fast. If he's absent, you can fast. It all depends on him. It all turns on his presence. He is central to the central religious practice. He is what matters. And so in verses 34 and 35, in response to this question about fasting, Jesus doesn't just talk about about fasting itself. He actually goes way beyond that and he makes this astounding claim to be God and to be the core, to be the key to a core religious practice of the day. Now that's a lot he's making pretty astounding claims there in the first couple verses and that's a lot for two verses but Jesus is far from done in the rest of this text in verses 36 to 39 Jesus goes on to offer three illustrations and at first glance these illustrations might seem to be disconnected from this question about fasting but in reality with these illustrations what Jesus is doing is he's taking what he's just said about fasting in particular And he's applying it much more broadly to religious practice in general. So if you look at verses 36 and 37 and 39, you'll see the repetition of a little phrase, no one, no one. The subject of each of these three illustrations is no one. And the reason for that is because these three illustrations are illustrations of what no one in their right mind would ever do. Or to put it another way, These are examples of wrong ways that people might respond to Jesus' astounding claims. Like, if his claims are true, if what he's saying is true, then no one in their right mind would respond to him like this. So what are they? Well, in verse 36, we see the first wrong response to Jesus. Jesus says, no one, there it is, no one, tears a piece from a new garment and puts it onto an old garment. Now, I've got a pair of jeans that I, I really have loved. I've had them for a few years and I've worn them a lot. And they're, they've been my favorite jeans. You know, y'all probably have a favorite pair of jeans. You're just really comfortable. You love wearing them. And uh, this week, a tragedy happened and they developed a hole in a place that they're no longer, no longer useful. Okay? So you know, I've worn them out, I've worn them a lot, and they just wore through at a, at a, at a pretty important place. And you know I really love these jeans but there's no way that I could wear them with the with this hole in them it just it wouldn't work. So what are my options? Well, I can throw them away. I can put them in the trash and get rid of them. Or I can patch them. I can get a patch and I can put a patch on them. But there's one thing that I will not be doing and I'm pretty sure that you would not do if you were in a similar situation. What I will not be doing is I will not be going to the store and buying a new pair of jeans and bringing it home and taking scissors and cutting a piece out of that brand new pair of jeans and patching it onto that old pair of jeans, right? And And why wouldn't I do that? Like, what would be the problem with that? Well, as Jesus says in verse 36, if you do that, you'll tear the new one, you'll ruin the new one, and the piece from the new is not gonna match the old anyway. And the end result will be that you'll have a faulty patch and you'll have two ruined pairs of jeans. Now, what's the point? Why is Jesus saying this? Well, his point is that Jesus is a new pair of jeans. He's the new pair of jeans. He's brought something new into the world, a new reality. And what some people want to do with Jesus is rather than receiving the fullness of that new reality, what they want to do is they want to, they want to kind of cut a patch out of him. They want to pick the parts of him that they like from, from him and his teaching, and they want to use those parts as patches onto their old belief system. Like, they don't want all of Jesus. They don't want the full deal. They they don't want the whole genes. They just want to make him a source for useful patches for something old. And what Jesus is saying here is that it doesn't work that way. You can't just pick and choose the parts of the bridegroom that you want. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. You take all of him or you take none of him. You can't just patch from him. Now, the most famous example of this pick and patch approach to Jesus historically uh, actually comes from Thomas Jefferson. You see a picture of his Bible up here on the screen. But Thomas Jefferson, one of America's founding fathers, the writer of the Declaration of Independence, uh, Jefferson had a really profound respect for Jesus. He liked much of Jesus' teaching. But he didn't buy Jesus' claims to deity or his miracles. He didn't buy all the supernatural stuff. And so what Jefferson did is he took a Bible and he took a razor blade And he literally cut out the parts he liked and he patched them together to form what is today known as the Jefferson Bible. This is what he did to it. Now, most of us, we are not grabbing razors and physically cutting parts of the Bible out that we don't like. We're not doing it like that. But many of us do the same thing in practice. We might like what Jesus says, for example, about loving our neighbors, but we tune out what he says about also loving our enemies. Or we're all for his command not to judge others, to be, to be uh, gracious toward others, not judgmental toward others. But we, we we're not so keen about what he says about keeping sex inside of marriage. Or we're great with his teaching on love and forgiveness, but we reject his teaching on wealth and generosity. Right? Like we take the parts that we like and we maybe ignore the parts that we don't. We pick and patch when it comes to Jesus. But Jesus is saying here in this first illustration, "Oh, that's a game you can't play. It doesn't work like that." See, Jesus is God. He's the true bridegroom, and to pick and to patch is a totally wrong response to him. Because when you pick and patch, who takes the place of God? Like when you're doing the Thomas Jefferson thing, who's the one with the authority? Who's the one sitting on the throne? It's not God. It's you. When you do that, you're really cutting God out of the equation altogether. You're taking his place, and you're, ta- and you're replacing him with yourself. See, practically speaking, there are ultimately only two positions you can take in regard to Jesus and his word. There's only two options. One is to stand over him and over his word in judgment of it, using the proverbial razor to kind of pick and patch and do what you want to do and saying, I'm going to believe this, and I'm not going to believe that, and I'm going to use this and not use that, You're standing over it, and you are the authority. You're in the place of God. The only other approach is to stand under it, to hear and to heed what the word of Jesus says, to listen to him and to take all of him. And the question for you and I today is this. It's which position are you in? Which position are you in? Are you picking and patching, or are you putting on the new jeans? The first wrong response is to pick and patch. Now we see the second wrong response in verses 37 and 38. Jesus continues, and no one, again, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Wineskins, in Jesus' day, were usually made from the skins of sheep or goats. You should see one up on the screen here. And what would happen is they'd take the body portion of the animal, they'd skin it, they'd remove all the hair, and they'd treat the hide to remove any kind of disease or germ. And then they'd sew it together to create a container for storing wine. And the neck portion of the animal would be the would be used for serving. You'd you'd pour from that portion. And initially, when you'd make a new wineskin, it would be rather elastic. It could stretch and expand as the wine inside of it would ferment and it could it could grow with the wine. And uh, but over time what would happen is the skin itself would dry out and it would lose that elasticity. And so if you were to take an old wineskin, you were to put new wine into it, well, as Jesus says in verse 37, what would happen is the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. So when the new wine ferments inside that brittle old skin, the whole container bursts and and everything is ruined. And so Jesus says, no one does that. Instead, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. New wine belongs in fresh wineskins. Now in offering this second illustration Jesus is speaking directly to the Judaism of his day and what he's saying is that the wrong thing to do with Jesus is just to add him to your existing religion. He's saying he is new wine and he won't fit into the old system. He's new wine he won't fit into the old system. So I'm going to borrow here from the Australian scholar Christopher Watkin who uh (coughs) he talks about kind of two different approaches, two different curves for how we approach religion. And common religious practice in Jesus' day was built on what you might call an N-curve. You'll see it right here. An N-curve, shaped like the letter N. And the way the N-curve works is you perform in order to earn a prize from God. You perform, you get a prize. You keep God's laws, and God blesses you in return. You keep the rules, and God gives you a reward. So for the Pharisees, living on the N-curve, why did they fast? Well, because they wanted to score spiritual points from God. They wanted something to come back to them from God. They were earning something through their performance. And this is how many people still approach religion today. If I perform, then God will give me a prize. If I'm a a good person, good things will happen in my life. It's built on an end curve. But y'all, Jesus came and he offered something totally new and different. He came and he offered a relationship with God that is not based on performance, rather is based on grace, on the undeserved gift of grace. See, the religion of Jesus, the gospel, is not built on an N-curve, rather it is built on a U-curve. It's built on a U-curve. See, Christians are people who know that our performance is nowhere near good enough to earn anything from God. We fail and we fall short of God's standards constantly, and yet God loves us And he sent Jesus down to us and he gave everything to us despite us. Jesus performed in our place. He lived the life that we were meant to live but haven't. And then he gave his life on the cross to save us. And now he freely offers us a relationship with God now and forever. In short, he gives us grace. Grace comes down to us. And it is his grace that motivates any performance in our lives. Christians still do religious activities, we still live a certain kind of way, but we do it for a totally different reason. It's not to earn favor from God, rather it's a response to the favor from God we've already been given. So like the Pharisees of old, we fast, but we don't do so to score spiritual points or earn something. Rather, and we'll get more on this in a little bit here, but rather we fast in order to feast on the grace that God has already given us in Christ. It's the same religious practice, but a very different religious motivation. And what Jesus is saying here in the second illustration is that you can't put the new wine of grace into the old wineskin of performance. The U curve can't be fit into the N curve. The gospel can't be contained within Judaism without bursting the bounds of both. It'll blow the whole thing up. And similarly, the gospel can't be contained within any religion based on performance without destroying them both. It'll ruin the whole thing. And so again, the wrong response to Jesus here is to try to simply add Jesus to your existing religious performance. The British missionary and theologian Leslie Newbigin uh, served many years as a missionary in India, and he tells of his time as a missionary there where he would regularly spend time in this Hindu temple where they had a shrine that was dedicated to all the great religious leaders of the world, all the great religious leaders throughout all of history. There were images for all of them, And, uh, and one time a year at least, they would offer worship to each of these religious leaders. And one of those images they had in that shrine was an image of Jesus. And one day a year, the monks in that temple would offer worship to Jesus. They would worship him as a deity, as a great leader, as a great religious teacher. To them, Jesus was one of the many, but he wasn't the bridegroom, and he wasn't central to everything, but he was was one of the many. They kind of fit him into the system. And they felt obligated to perform for him at least once a year in order to check that box and ensure whatever prize might be given to them as a result of their, their obedience. And what Jesus is saying here is that it can't work like that. You can't just add Jesus into your system. You can't just put him up on the wall with all the other ones. He doesn't belong in the mix with everybody else. Because Jesus actually brings a new system all together. New wine requires new wineskins. It's a U curve, not an M. And so which curve are you living on? Which curve are you living on? Are you living on the end curve and adding Jesus to your shrine and performing to try to earn favor from God? Or are you genuinely receiving his grace on the U-curve? Are you experiencing his grace, understanding the goodness of the gospel and responding to it by pointing your whole life toward him? Which curve are you on? Now finally, we see the third wrong response in verse 39. Jesus says no one, No one. After drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now I took some time this week to do a little research on wine. I'm not a I'm not a wine connoisseur, I'm not an expert on this. And I had this conception that old wine was always better than new wine. Just seemed like that would be the case. You hear about expensive bottles of old wine and just assume that would be the case. And so I want to do some fact checking. What I found this week actually surprised me. The truth is that most wines. Most wines are actually made to be enjoyed right away. Most wines are actually made to be enjoyed right away. Wine is actually like most things in life. And as most things get older, and remember as I say this, I'm talking about things, not people, but as most things get older, do you know what happens to them? They become junk. (laughs) They become junk. Like there are some exceptions, maybe you've got like an old camera, an antique camera, or a piece of furniture, a baseball card that's worth a fortune now um, because, it, because it's old. But, but most old cameras and most old furniture and most old baseball cards should probably just be thrown onto a trash heap somewhere. And most wines are like that with few exceptions. So old wine is not necessarily better than new wine. But here's the thing, if you have the belief that old wine is better than new wine, And someone offers you some new wine, what are you going to do with that new wine? You're not even going to try it. You're not even going to give it a shot. And that's the scenario here. Jesus pictures someone drinking old wine and being perfectly content with it. Things are good for me. I like this wine. It tastes good. I I like it. I'm, I'm happy with this. And that individual doesn't even consider trying the new wine. He doesn't even know if it would be better because he won't even give it a shot, he won't even give it a taste. He simply says yeah this is good enough for me good enough good enough and that's how some people respond to Jesus With outright rejection they won't even give him a shot they're perfectly content with their old religious practice with their old ways of doing things with the end curve they've been living on yeah this works for me it seems to be fine I'm content over here I like this so they won't even give Jesus a try but here's the thing In the history of the world, there has never been another person like Jesus. Jesus made these astounding claims to be God, to be the creator and savior of the world, to be the very center of right religious practice. His closest friends who lived with him for three years, like imagine your roommate saying this about you, you know, like, but his closest friends who lived with him for three years said he never did any one single thing wrong. He lived a perfect life. Like, that's astounding. His teaching has shaped Western culture for 2,000 years. Almost everything that we believe about what is right and wrong, good and bad, flows from the teaching of Jesus. Shaped Western culture. His followers said that they saw him die and then rise from the grave and then ascend into heaven. And today, as we speak, there are millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people around the world who are giving worship to Jesus, who who are centering their lives around him. Jesus's life is the singularly most influential life in the history of the world, with no one even close. And for that reason, the one thing you can't do with Jesus is simply ignore him. You can't say, yeah, the old way is better. I'm not even gonna try that. Like if you're you're not a Christian here today, or if you are a Christian, you've got friends who don't believe in Jesus, the one thing you or they need to do is at least give Jesus some serious consideration. At least check him out. There's way too much on the line not to at least give him a thought. See, if this whole Christianity, if the whole Jesus thing, if Jesus is a sham, then you can cross Christianity off your list. You can just throw it away. If Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, you can throw Christianity on the trash heap with all your old baseball cards. Pitch him out. But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, Then there are massive implications for your life and for the whole world. And you, the least you can do is at least give the new wine a taste. For anyone who doesn't yet believe the Christian faith, the place to start is with Jesus. Give him a taste, check him out, ask if he might be for real. And so these three illustrations tell us that some people take bits and pieces of Jesus, use them as patches. Some people try to add Jesus to their existing beliefs. And still others outright reject him. But what about you? What about you? What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Now I want you to imagine yourself for a moment as the bride or the groom standing at the altar during a wedding ceremony. The officiant asks you some questions about your commitment to this relationship. And as you stand there, what are your options? Well, you can either walk away from the altar and walk away from the relationship. Might be difficult at that particular moment, but that's that's one option. Or you can say, I do. And in doing so, you can commit your whole self for the whole of your life to this particular person in this particular relationship. And do you know what Jesus is asking you to do today? He's asking you to say, I do. He's asking you to say, I do. I do. He's inviting you to go all in on him, to give your whole self to him for the whole of your life and to experience the joy of marriage to your maker. See, the real point of this passage is not about fasting. It's about marriage. And the challenge to you today is to say, I do to Jesus, to go all in on Jesus, to stand under his word, to put on the new jeans, to get off the N curve and to live on the U curve and to drink deeply of the new wine, to take all of Jesus. That's the offer today. Say yes to him. Now this whole section began with a question about fasting. And I want to finish this morning by briefly returning to that question. In light of Jesus being the true bridegroom, where then does fasting fit? Well, in verse 35, Jesus says, then they will fast in those days. And church family, do you know when those days are? Those days are right now. We are living in those days. Jesus' disciples did not fast while he was with them, but now he is not with us. And so in these days, which are those days, we do fast. As we await the return of the true bridegroom, we fast and we pray and eagerly anticipate the day when we will be with him again forever. See, someday our groom will return. Our eternal marriage will be finalized. We will be with him, feasting forever with him. But right now, we are not physically with him, and yet he remains the ultimate feast. We do not live on the end curve where fasting is a means to earning favor from God. Nowhere in Paul's 13 New Testament letters does he command Christians to fast, neither does Peter or John or any other book in the New Testament. You will find in the words of Jesus the assumption that Christians will fast, but you will find nowhere in the New Testament a command that we must fast. We do not live on the end curve where fasting is prescribed as a means to gain something from God. Rather, we live on the U-curve, and we fast as a response to all that God has already given us in Christ. For Christians, fasting now is a means of feasting on God himself. It is a saying no to the lesser pleasure of food in order to say yes and to feast on the greater pleasure of our relationship with God. Again, it's the same religious practice, but a very different religious purpose. Fasting expresses a longing for more of God, for greater intimacy with our true bridegroom. Fasting expresses a hunger for Christ's presence in our lives. Fasting expresses an eagerness for Christ's return when every hunger will be fully and finally satisfied. I love what David Mathis says here. He says, in Christ, fasting is not just a Godward expression of our need. It is not just an admission that we are not full. Fasting is a statement in the very midst of our need that we are not empty. We are not empty. We have tasted the new wine, and we want more. We've been filled with Christ, and we want more. We have experienced the depths of joy that come from a relationship with God, and we want more. And so because we want more, the elders here at Park would like to invite you to join us in feasting on Christ in the coming weeks. We're fast approaching the start of Advent. And the word Advent means coming or arrival. This is the season leading up to Christmas where Christians throughout the millennia have looked back at Christ's first coming and have looked forward in eager anticipation of his second coming. It is a time, Advent is a time of preparing our hearts for Christ. And Advent also happens to be a season that tends to be marked by a whole lot of rather frantic preparation for the more material side of Christmas. Lots of shopping and parties and travel and all that. And in the midst of all that preparation, it can be easy to miss the whole purpose of Advent. The preparation of our hearts for the coming of the true bridegroom. And so this Advent, we're going to do something a little bit different. We want to invite you to join us in a weekly fast leading up to Christmas. Every Wednesday, beginning November 29th, we're going to give you Thanksgiving week off. But every Wednesday, beginning November 29th and going through December 20th, every Wednesday in Advent for those four weeks, We as elders will be fasting from food in order to feast on Christ and to prepare our hearts for his coming. We'll begin the fast after dinner on Tuesday night. We'll break the fast at dinner on Wednesday night. And each week you'll see a graphic in our weekly email with a theme that corresponds to the Advent candle of that week, along with some brief prayer guidance. And our encouragement to you will be to take the time you would ordinarily devote to meals to instead focus on Christ, to seek Christ, and to pray for renewal in our own lives, in our church, and in our city. Now, we know, as I say all this, I, we know that this may not work for everyone. And that's okay. There's no pressure here. We are not on the end curve. There will be no report card. There will be no grade on this. Like, that we're not on the end curve. Rather, this is an invitation to you to join us in what might be a new spiritual discipline for you. And it needs to work for you. It needs to work in your rhythms. So some of you may choose to take an entire day. Some of you may choose to take one meal. Some of you may choose to do something different altogether. Or maybe Wednesdays don't work. You need to pick a different day of the week. That's totally okay. There's tons of freedom here. But we want to offer this as an opportunity for you to experience fasting as a means of feasting on Christ. And whatever you do, we want you to be intentional about it, to make it something that helps you focus on Christ. And so I'd urge you to join us in Advent Fasting. Not because you have not tasted the new wine of Christ's presence, but precisely because you have, and you want more. You want more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text, and we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, the true bridegroom who has come to give us new wine, new garments, a new life, a new relationship with you, a new hope, a new future. We thank you for all that you've given us in Christ. And God, would we be a people who are always feasting on you? This week we're going to feast, even today we're going to feast on some great food, but would that never detract from the greater feast, the better food that is a relationship with you? Father, I pray for those who today maybe have never tasted the new wine or who are are taking bits and pieces of of Jesus and not taking the whole of him. Those who are kind of adding him into the mix, people who, who are responding wrongly to Jesus, would today be a day where they respond rightly and where they say, I do to the true bridegroom. Would you bring salvation to us, God? Would you bring new life? Would you give new freedom? Would you give new hope today? And would you bless us as we uh, worship in the rest of this time together? Fill us with you, pray in Jesus' name, amen.